Splenda and electrolytes, the lust with which I follow orders. Fill me with your desires, the lust with which I follow orders. Fill me with your desires. You can rotate me 360. The suspense, the suspension, the suspension of a beautiful hovering digital promise. The suspension of a beautiful hovering digital promise. Implied but always already omitted. The guest on our show today is Sophia Opal an interdisciplinary artist and researcher examining physical architectures and digital interfaces as parallel sites of power. Working with glass, mirror, and the screen, Opal explores the paradoxes of being human within surveillance capitalism. Sophia, welcome. Hi, Veronica. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to start by describing for our listeners what your work looks like. So could you describe your latest multimedia installation on either side of a surface and introduce us to Claudia? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So um, on either side of a surface was a uh, an exhibition that I did a solo at at Arsenal um, just this past spring. And um, it featured a number of of laser cut um, 
objects and some light boxes and a sort of a floor piece as well that was made of anti-fatigue mats but it all kind of coalesced around a sort of central video work that um, featured this um, this character I came up with Claudia and so Claudia um, was kind of based off uh, AI assistants like Siri and Alexa and kind of imagining uh, her her kind of inner or outer monologue and and the the things that she's kind of considering as this kind of piece of of software that's complicit within surveillance capitalism um but also is relied on um for this kind of affective or or feminized kind of domestic labor as this sort of ai assistant um so yeah, the video work uh, features, it's predominantly CGI imagery um, and uh, a, a collection of, of 3D scans of myself and also of this kind of persona, Claudia. Um, and uh, yeah, it's really, for me at least, kind of untangling some of these, these kind of complicated questions around where sort of um, the expectations of gender intersect with surveillance capitalism um, and what, I guess, trying to sort of imagine what the, the, the life of an, an AI would look like. Um, and the, so it's this kind of 10 minute video piece with this kind of monologue um, of Claudia uh, that I wrote and recorded and then um, sort of pitch corrected and I basically tried to mimic the sort of vocalization or text-to-speech kind of sound of AI um, so in doing so I was also kind of doing it my own kind of strange labor of, of capitalist affect and mimicry mm-hmm. um, yeah <laughs> yeah it's interesting that you mentioned that you were trying to get inside the mind of Claudia, because Mm -hmm. I I feel like with the relatively recent or very abrupt introduction of um, things like chat GPT, I I got the sense that for the first time we have this sort of way of interfacing with these AI creations, you know, by giving them the capacity to, uh, articulate themselves through like our language rather than binary code. It seems mm-hmm. like this kind of weird opportunity to um, interface with AI or just like these kind of generative neural network models and to yeah. see what they come up with in like autocorrect form. Totally. Um, yeah. Have you have you played much with something like ChatGPT? No, not at all. I'm, you haven't I'm experimented very, with it? I'm very adamantly opposed to chat GPT, um, which I feel like we can get into more later. Um, but yeah, I think like, you know, I think I think what you said is interesting, like this, this kind of um, this like feedback loop between human and AI. Um, and that was like, you know, and, and like being able to like actually like not just ask it a question and have it like generate a response, but have this kind of like prolonged conversation with it as a chatbot. Um, 
and yeah, this, I guess something else that I was really thinking about with this work was um, this idea of like metabolization, ingestion, regurgitation, this mm-hmm. kind of like mirroring the ways that AI act as this mirror, uh, the way that AI ingests all of our data and then spits it back out at us. And then we in turn in- metabolize that and like, I was yeah. thinking a lot about this kind of like ongoing circuit of 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 metabolization or ingestion. Um, and so there was a lot of like quite visceral metabolic imagery in the exhibition as well. Uh-huh. And in the in the script or the audio from yeah. Claudia and her dialogue or monologue. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think that's something that I find the most concerning. They're not just like these unilateral tools that we use. They use our conversations as further data. And mm-hmm. we begin to rely on the AI tools for the creation of that data. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening is that the AI is kind of fed its own creations back into itself. Yeah. That makes sense. And I'm just... yeah. I don't know, just like as a researcher, I could see that being a really faulty data set, a really skewed one, really biased one. Yeah, totally. I mean, people talk about like the hallucination, AI Mm -hmm. hallucinations. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm like, I also find it, I also find it troubling to think about how like with something like ChatGPT that's, that's become public, but it's still like, it's still quite faulty and they're relying on the public to train it and so that's another kind of non-remunerated affective labor that the public is providing Mm -hmm. for this company and you know like how will like if chat gpt eventually you know they eventually decide they've gotten enough training from outsourcing crowdsourcing Mm -hmm. you know they could like this is a for-profit company at the end of the day they can go private they can sell it You know, Mm -hmm. they can sell it for the purposes of psychological warfare. I don't know. I don't feel entirely comfortable providing free training for a public or for a private company that, whose interests I am, you Mm -hmm. know, completely unsure of. That's the business model for much of tech is that the labor that you provide with like content creation with something like Instagram or X you know, you're a creator for those companies and it's always, it's always been unremunerated except for the very few who make a livelihood. Yeah. Selling ads or something. For sure. Okay. Well, before we start to talk about AI too (laughs) much and get away from the question that I also want to ask you, that's a bit more broad. um, Is there a moment that you can recall that uh, sort of marked the beginning of this current research interest of yours? And yeah, how did you arrive at these questions for yourself? Ultimately, I think that like my excitement around some of these topics really boils down to power and coercion. And uh, thinking about power as this, um, this very kind of subtle entity that operates on the axes of of sort of desire and and kind of um this very kind of hostile uh affirmation um and i think that when i was an undergrad i remember reading this this paper by scott lash and the term post-hegemonic power came up 
and that was something that was really I, I really started thinking about that and then and then later like sort of biopolitics and then like the way that biopolitics is extended into sort of info politics or the or and then of course like affective labor um and and sort of affective control but really like the this sort of lineage of I guess interest and research is very much just born of this fascination with the kind of insidious um nature of of power in this kind of like postmodern um you know like like late capitalist landscape and the ways in which it is um yeah leveraged in very kind of quiet ways or or ideas of soft power um so then from there i started really becoming very interested in like web and communication theory and then thinking a lot about surveillance and, and thinking a lot about datification and the datified body and all of these this sort of subtle ways that things which we are very eager to consider immaterial um, have this very kind of physical ramification on the body. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned coercion specifically mm-hmm. as something that you're thinking with, because um, that reminds me of the writing of Simone Way, who I really, mm-hmm. who, whose work I really like, mm-hmm. and um, reading her uh, text, The Iliad or the Poem of Force, mm. she describes like her notion of justice is consent, and so mm-hmm. she. Um, kind of creates this parallel antithetical relationship between um, coercion and consent. And coercion is anything that you can't refuse. Mm-hmm. And I think that technology is, I think that the concept of consent is so interesting and almost perfect for thinking about the power of technology and the coercions of technology, mm-hmm. because it's not something that we are able to refuse a lot of the time. You, It's, uh, it's not something that asks for your consent mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. to be in your life it's not something that ever asks for your consent even the introduction of something like chat gpt being so abrupt i think is a is an example of um something that didn't really care much for your consent mm-hmm. even though it had these massive repercussions that were almost immediate yeah yeah absolutely um, I was reading this interesting parallel that someone gave about other fields of research and how shocking it would be to us if somebody in a lab was researching some like new strain of, uh, I don't know, some kind of seed, you know, like modifying a seed or something, and then mm-hmm. just went around planting it randomly yeah, in the world yeah. without, with ever, without ever asking anyone's permission or consent. You mm-hmm. know, we would be pretty outraged. We would see the dangers of that. Yeah, just having experimentation fold out in real time. But we, like you said, consider technology to be this ephemeral thing that doesn't have these very direct material repercussions when it does. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I feel like, you know, governmentally, we're still catching up, but it's like very behind because the developments are so rapid. And now you like you suddenly have these these instances where now on on Facebook or Meta or whatever you can't link to Canadian news sites because um, because uh, new legislation was recently passed where they want the news sites to be compensated for any time they're linked in social media you know and and it's just like these crazy instances where you know 
these things are only happening now, you know, and Facebook has existed since I was 13. And, you know, like, I feel like we're still, we're still kind of grappling with the ramifications. Yeah. 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 I want to talk a little bit about Claudia. Yes. Yes. So the persona of Claudia reminds me of the work of another artist whose work I really respect and admire, um, Sandra Perry. Mm -hmm. Uh, In that you and Perry both use new media avatars to interrogate the medium itself and the ways that digital technologies inconspicuously mediate our lives. Mm -hmm. Who were some of the artists that maybe influenced your own practice and... uh, do you see any of yourself in Claudia? Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Sandra Perry absolutely has has always been um, a huge a huge influence, um, especially in the way that that she kind of deploys like sort of like software defaults or or the mm-hmm. kind of like things that are baked into software as points of commentary, but also points of of um, uh hopefulness sometimes like I know that I think it was in the serpentine galleries she had the show where she was using the the um sort of like default purple that's in blender um which means that there's no texture that's been applied to a surface and (laughs) I know I know this because I I I um this is like part of one of my lectures for my students because I'm like this is so good (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but um, but you know, using this this like purple lack of texture as this like site of possibility and this like ability to kind of like harness these little things and use them for this kind of like larger poesis that is very self-reflexive or reflective of the software, the technology, I think is really, really great. Um, but yeah, Claudia, do I see myself in Claudia? Yeah, I absolutely do. I think I you know, I see myself in these, you know, benefiting from these systems of, you know, of, of uh, late stage capitalism, you know, living in the West. And, and, you know, and also I see myself complicit in the ways that I am sometimes very sort of like docile or, or sort of like relinquish myself in order to gain access, in order to sort of have the, the pleasurable qualities of, of sort of um, surveillance capitalism. Um, so I, I, I think I see myself as occupying a sort of similarly um, contradictory or complicit. Well, I guess the other question then would be just for my curiosity, what considerations that went into deciding what Claudia would look like? It, uh, well, it's, it's funny. So I, I, um, I had already downloaded on my computer, this preset uh, body, female body, um, that was free. It was a free body <laughs> and it was pre-rigged, which means that like for anyone who is not use a lot of like 3D rendering software, it just means that like it already had all of the joints and their like movability baked in. So um, it was just like, cause uh, you know, rigging is uh, quite a laborious and, and tedious task to do. Um, so yeah, anyway, this, this, like this uh, body was already rigged and I downloaded it off of like a, you know, a bank of, of um, 
assets, an asset, a 3D asset bank. Um, and for some reason in her appearance and in her, she was wearing this kind of like, in, like hyper conservative sort of uh, like office wear, like a little yeah. like, like white top with like a little sort of like tie and like blue, like fitted, um, like, I don't know, like office pants. And, um, so she was very much this kind of portrait of like, of like white respectability, I guess. She seemed like the perfect uh, body to use uh, in which to embody this this like AI entity um, who you know because in thinking about people like like or people um, AIs like Siri and Alexa their voices are also very sort of white coded and even their names are sort of white coded and so yeah that was that was a big like I, I liked the idea of her being a default you know and yeah. then of course that what the default um, body in these programs is. And um, so she's she's basically a, a conglomerate of that 3D uh, preset that I downloaded. And then also just the rendering program I use, Cinema 4D, has these two um, white cisgendered bodies baked into it as just like things you can drag and drop into like your scene. Or whatever and they're both um they're both sort of like idealized proportions and um so so she's a, a conglomerate of those two bodies in order to kind of comment on the type of subject formation that a lot of these systems are kind of implying or encouraging in in their usage i think this really brings us to an interesting point about the gendered aspects of most AI assistants and that mm -hmm. they are unnecessarily gendered. Yeah, like Amazon's Alexa, Apple Siri are both female. I think I personally think this is a clear example of how the creators of a product convey their own implicit biases and beliefs indirectly to the users of their products. Um, because mm -hmm. as a consequence of like seemingly benign software design decisions, users are normalizing both the gender binary and women as the preferred gender for subservience. Just seeing this sort of Claudia creation being so readily available, the, the ease of it was yeah. enticing. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I think the the implications for using new media as a medium become quite interesting when you think about this because the limits of our creations in AI are kind of the limits that the creators set out for us. The ceiling is always already there. Yeah. This is a roundabout way of just asking, what are your thoughts on the gendered aspects of AI assistance? Specifically? Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's, um, you know, it's another kind of, uh, it's, it's interesting because it's, uh, in, in many ways, it does, as you said, really sort of reaffirm um, the ways in which our, our system, or like the sort of capitalist uh, labor force relies on female or feminized people who are doing this kind of social reproduction, you know, be it domestic, be it emotional, be it affective work in order to reproduce the energy and the ability of and of the workforce. So, you know, um, 
in a lot of ways, like it just feels like this kind of this kind of natural extension of woman as technology in service of man, something that, you know, Sylvia Federici has written about this, this idea of like the, the sort of uh, non-remunerated labor of, of sort of feminized subjects. It's really interesting within the AI context because it's this extension of that labor but it doesn't necessarily like it's not as though we're doing this so that moms and cleaners and uh, sex workers can all like take a day off you know it's this like this extension and and increase of this of this desire for this kind of particular kind of subservient support mm-hmm. that I find that I find troubling and you know I've read articles too about if someone feels comfortable shouting at or 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 ordering around their Siri or their Alexa or their Google Home, you know, are they then more likely to do the same for other other people that they that they think of as lesser than at whose expense is that ongoing? Mm-hmm. That reminds me of um, an article that I read recently that was titled uh, AI girlfriends may actually be making men worse, experts say. <laughs> Um, which to summarize briefly, the article warned readers that AI girlfriends are, quote, creating a new generation of incels who will feel emboldened to control women and struggle to communicate with real life human beings, end quote. And the danger seems to lie in the very concept of creating a partner without free will, which you're, like you said, emboldened to control. The experts have found that concerning because the drivers of gender-based violence are these ingrained cultural beliefs that men can and should control women. And it's giving them opportunities to kind of exercise that fantasy. And I've also read accounts of people using AI to write their wedding vows for talk therapy. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering very broadly, what's what's your take on AI? its potentials, its redundancies, perhaps are there aspects of our inner lives where AI doesn't belong? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have a lot of a lot of thoughts. I think, you know, I, like with this, this article, and there are a lot of other equally fascinating articles that just sort of talk about, you know, I think an argument that a lot of a lot of misogynists make in these in these instances is that, you know, it's helpful for for men to have an outlet for these feelings. Um, And it's better that it's not a human if it's an AI, you know, that they can mistreat. And uh, I feel like, you know, I I hate to see the the sort of normalization of dysfunctional behavior Mm -hmm. um, in in these systems. Um, that are basically just allowing for like antisocial and hateful behavior to get a pass. There's this really great essay by Sarah Sharma, who's someone I've, I've referenced a lot in like while making this video and but also in general in my thinking about sort of feminized AI. It's called like going to work in mommy's basement or something. And it's about these kind of tech bros outsourcing work like maternal work to apps like TaskRabbit or Uber or Uber Eats or, you know, um, these things that are sort of providing them these services, very often men providing these like, quote unquote, feminized services and getting paid for it. And I think what's also interesting about these kind of outsourcing of, of quote unquote, like, 
the the female um traditionally yeah yeah labor like cooking and cleaning and caring for the body in general yeah I think when I was giving I gave a talk uh, about my work about this uh, video piece specifically at Arsenal Um, the artist Connie Wilson had a really interesting point because we were talking about Silvia Federici and she was she brought up the fact that you know witches carrying out sort of like alternative forms of knowledge making or knowledge production that didn't fall into the sort of typical gendered feminized gendered category were considered like bad actors mm-hmm. and then she kind of drew a parallel to like but all of these feminized ais are being trained by men on data sets that may have incel content on them these are not the sort of quote-unquote like naturalized feminine bodies that that you know we love to equate or like societally equate like women with the natural and you know um but these are these are these incredibly sort of like faulty contradictory women that are actually trained on data some of which may be misogynistic so anyway it's like yeah again it's a feedback loop of of you know, misogynistic behavior begets more misogynistic behavior. Well, that uh, reminds me of um, a quote that I always think about whenever I think about AI in general by the media theorist Marshall McLuhan back from 1964, where he, I'll read the quote and mm-hmm. then I'll kind of paraphrase what it means to me. So he wrote that our conventional response to all media Um, namely that it is how they are used that counts, is the numb stance of the technological idiot for the content of a medium is like the juicy piece of meat carried by the burglar to distract the watchdog of the mind. He's saying here is that technologies introduce new ways of relating to the world, and then they work to normalize and cement those dynamics, and that we should remain mindful, not just of what technologies do for us, but of what they do to us and how they change us through our use of them. And I think that what we were just talking about with normalizing these dynamics between this fantasy, this like fantasy of women as a subservient helper Mm -hmm. or an assistant in your life. Um, But I also wonder, do your experiences with technology in your own day-to-day life find their way into your artwork? Yeah, I guess especially with technologies like chat GPT, you know, we, we've like, we've spent a lot of time thinking about, like, I think especially in the arts, there have been some really valuable, interesting conversations recently about like thinking about um, the ways in which the art, the photographic archive or the encyclopedia or sort of like ways of, of accessing history or accessing information have been used um, to perpetuate a very particular kind of, of sort of colonial world narrative view. worldview. And, you know, and I think the same needs to be considered with chat GPT and, and, you know, what information is being fed into it, what information is, is coming back out. Absolutely. Um, you know, and not, and not, and not just the information itself, but the frame, you know, cause I think that's like what McLuhan is talking about here. Not, you know, it's, like as he said, it's not just the content, but it's sort of like the the sort of infrastructure, the the frame around the content that we need to be really wary of. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, the back end of I've certainly noticed my behaviors changing, you know, with with technology in ways that are 
you know, that are not just, again, not just about like the content I'm seeing on social media, but the ways in which I'm using technology, you know, that I've read that I've read that like we're our long-term memory is getting worse, but our short-term memory is getting better and our and our pattern recognition is getting better because of our, the sort of like, just like the, the constant influx of, of, of content that we're, that we're getting, which is interesting. And I've certainly noticed that like, I am very prone to multitasking in my day-to-day life. And I think that sometimes the sort of like overwhelming quality of digital media is also present in my work and the kind of like multiple sort of like entry points where there are like several things going on simultaneously. And yeah, I guess like the Marshall McLuhan quotation that you um, just read, um, I, I brought in, I pulled up this quotation from Shoshana Zuboff in her book on surveillance capitalism, because I think it's a very similar thought And it's one that I think about all the time. It's that she writes, automated machine processes not only know our behavior, but also shape our behavior at scale. With this reorientation from knowledge to power, it is no longer enough to automate information flows about us. The goal now is to automate us. So the, you know, the capture of information isn't just to know about us in order to better advertise us, but we are actively being um, being shaped into a particular kind of subject by these, the ways that we're consuming information. Mm -hmm. And maybe shepherded into certain kinds of behaviors, certain kinds of dependencies that are, you know, directly, you know, something that I've been thinking about as a, as a researcher, like someone that's interested in Eastern European studies, Mm. I read a lot about the Bolsheviks and kind of the rise of revolutionary ideology and how it can go absolutely off the edge of a cliff. Mm. And something that I've been reading about in my own research and some of the parallels I've been discovering between like big tech and Bolsheviks has really disturbed me because there is a lot of obsession with like the centralization of behaviors and kind of like the centralization of an ideology and how that can be used to shape a world and an individual within that mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not a question. I just feel I feel compelled to say that <laughs> mm-hmm. that maybe we should not be so trusting of ideas that seem romantic because they can be easily manipulated by bad actors for their own gain. You know, I don't mean to be an alarmist, but it's something that if you are a student of history, you will see happening again and again and again is that people use romantic ideas um, for nefarious reasons all throughout history. Mm -hmm. You can see something, you know, as romantic as like the empowerment of the peasant class and empowering the workers movement being completely manipulated to disenfranchise and disempower the work, those very workers. Kind of Trump's like bag in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you will indulge me in letting me talk about my own research just for a little bit. Yeah. Um, something that I've been exploring lately in my own research and art writing is the kind of disintegration or destabilization of meaning as a means of weaponizing confusion and apathy and mm-hmm. absurdity. Um, an example of what I mean is someone like Putin calling war a special operation 
or like you said, someone like Trump um, denying culpability in the attempts to stop the ratification of someone else's, yeah. you know, I think our symbolic systems, uh, being able to call a thing by its rightful name are intrinsically tied to the possibility of exercising our will. Uh, and I also think it's the role of artists to resignify and contend the meaning of things continually in perpetuity. I think it's this ability to debate and contest the meaning of something that mm. is so valuable about the arts, about visual arts, poetry. Um, yeah, I think this ability to question and redefine the meaning of something is what keeps our symbolic systems intact and coherent. Mm. Um and I'm curious what you think of that. Like, would you agree with that? Do you see yourself in this role as an artist, someone who is continually kind of renewing or interrogating the meaning of something through your art practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, yeah, I I really like this idea of meaning needing to be constantly sort of renewed, and that our understandings of the world are sort of mutable and shifting. I, I think I, I think of my art practice maybe more as like exploring or metabolizing meaning than I do about necessarily renewing. But I guess I see I see my role as kind of like carving out some kind of space among or alongside maybe dominant or canonical narratives that sort of like inputs a crack or a fissure. You know, and especially in thinking about sort of the logics of capitalism, which has been a big sort of topic of, of research in the logics of power, the way that power is wielded through capitalism. I think that something that I see my role as an artist or I see an, uh, something that I see being important uh, to do as an artist is inputting some kind of slippage or or uh, making one aware of the contradictions within this logic system uh, and maybe inputting some kind of hopefulness or poesis or finding a way to sort of like leech out the the poetic from these kind of like otherwise very very sort of like uh, hegemonic systems that sort of weaponize a very particular kind of logic and then also I guess like remind like putting back in that like the abject and like the the sort of like disgustingness of like you know what does it look like when like what are what is the metabolic tract of like an overtired ai look like you know um and things like that but i also i pulled in this quotation from donna haraway when and you know so many people cite this line because i think it's it's an excellent line I, I was thinking about that in relation to what you asked, because it she writes, it matters what matters we use to think other matters with. It matters what stories we tell to tell other stories with. It matters what knots, not knots, what thoughts think thoughts, what descriptions describe descriptions, what ties tie tie ties. It matters what stories make worlds, what worlds make stories. And uh, yeah, I think about that a lot especially with AI, you know, and with these systems that are being, that are being trained and the ways in which they're potentially being trained on misinformation or misinformation that's been weaponized for a particular political end. Something that you just said that I find really encouraging, or maybe 
maybe this is not how you meant it, but I want to ask if this is how you meant it. Uh, it seems like you mentioned poetry as being kind of emancipatory mm. and poetry because it's antithetical to these logics mm-hmm. because logics are rigid, very rule bound, very methodical. And poetry is just the realm of possibility. It's not those other things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is that what you meant that you think poetry is, is like, has this kind of emancipatory quality to it because of its, because of the way that it doesn't fit neatly into those logics or the way that it challenges them maybe? Yeah. I would like for it to be, and maybe like, you know, maybe emancipatory is, is too strong a word. I'm not sure. I think it certainly allows for a, um, allows for an alternative way of thinking, you know, that I think is really useful. And I and suppose that in, in many ways is very emancipatory, you know, the ability to draw correlations between disparate things in a way that one, one wouldn't within a particular kind of like, um, you know, hegemonic logic system under, under sort of colonial capitalism, for example. Yeah, I think that I mean, I certainly do think that as an artist, the importance of, you know, thinking of material and thinking of words and, and objects and, and sort of thinking of those as a logic system as well, you know, and thinking about the body and bodily affect as a logic system as well, in order to sort of counter these very sort of like I driven and like intellectual logic systems that are sort of exploited by by systems of power. Well, that reminds me of another question that I wanted to ask you, kind of related to the medium that you choose to work in. Your work as an artist is very research intensive mm-hmm. and easily translates into an academic discipline, but mm-hmm. you choose to disseminate your findings primarily through art spaces and the immersive sculptural environments that you create rather than mm-hmm. academia. And I'm curious why why that is. Like what do the arts offer you in medium or audience that a research paper wouldn't? Yeah. I think about this all the time and and regularly question my motivations. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a combination of, of things for sure. I think that I I came to art very, very young and I started it really like I think in in so many ways, like I came to reading about politics and I came to reading critical theory and I came to reading about so many things through the lens of art because I would find out about them through art rather than the other way around. And so I think in some ways it became a bit of a framework through which I, I sort of understood the world just because I started, I thought of like I started making well you know I started drawing when I was a child and then you know I went to an art high school and it was very much you know this this kind of felt very much like my sort of framework through which I saw things but I do think there's something useful about the sort of public and pedagogic potentials of of art um that you know I think, I mean, I also like, I don't know that I would necessarily like, ideally, I would see like sort of research and academia and like material practice as like 
existing within this kind of like useful kind of continuum where the the uh, material things are their own kind of research and their own kind of way of thinking that's then influencing the research and the sort of more academic side. But yeah, I think there is something certainly useful about giving um, giving people that bodily affective experience that I think can can be can be productive, especially because I, I would say my I specifically am thinking about power and I'm thinking about the way po- power impacts the body. I think there's something that something physical and spatial and like auditory and visual can do that maybe something written on a page couldn't to make us really like feel those those physical implications. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think I personally also think that my affective experiences are more powerful than my purely intellectual ones. Both are important, both are moving. Um, and perhaps there's an efficiency to the intellectual endeavor that maybe offers a bit more clarity, less ambiguity. Yeah. But the affective, the ambiguity is important. Like is yeah. what we've been talking about. Like the poetic is important in its ambiguity. I think also like there's something empowering for me, at least I can't speak to everyone's experience of being in like a sort of immersive installation, but there's something empowering in, in that experience that you feel like you're, I don't know, discovering something by being in this space that is, can only happen with your presence I don't know. I, I like it's it's kind of it's a bit ephemeral and difficult to explain, but I've definitely had these really empowering moments in in sort of like new media installations where you know like the ability to sort of like feel yourself activating a landscape. Yeah, I, I think that's that's like incredibly powerful to me. I think I know what you're referring to. It's the moment that you walk into something that needs you as the audience yeah, in order to make sense or to come alive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, those moments of empowerment anywhere throughout our life are rare mm-hmm. <laughs> where, you, where you are necessary and indispensable that way. Mm-hmm. Well, for my last question, do you have anything coming up that you would like to share with our listeners? Or any last parting words? Well, if anyone is interested in in uh, paying Claudia a visit, she is right now um, being featured at Trinity Square Video in Toronto as a part of a show there until uh, early October, so for about a month. Also available online, they have a they have like a an online component to their um, to this exhibition. So if you go to their website, you can watch the video if if that's of interest. Yeah, and I guess I'm just right now I'm I'm just kind of gearing up to start work on a new solo exhibition for the winter. That's going to be quite ambitious, I think, and quite immersive, which is exciting. So yeah, more, I guess, more news on that soon. <laughs> um, will we see Claudia again? Or I don't know if Claudia will make an appearance, but I think there may be an alternate persona that's going to make some exciting. kind of appearance. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay. Well, thank you so much, Sophia, for your time. And it was an absolute pleasure as it always is to (laughs) talk through some ideas with you and, and, uh, some of our overlapping research interests and, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Great pleasure.
A big thank you to our interview guest, Sophia Apple. For more information on this interview series, or to put in a request for future interview topics, please visit ragweed.info, that's r-a-g-w-e-e-d.info. See you next month!